As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Hey, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. This slightly nasal, hmm. quasi uh, raspy voice is Matt Tebby, and I'm joined by Ben Spurky. <clears throat> I don't know how you'd, my, I don't feel very nasal, but I, you know, no, I'll, let, you're not I'll, nasal. I'll let our listeners be the judge of that. No, you have like a Mr. Rogers vibe, hmm. um, and I've got a different, different vibe Rogers. going on today. Yeah. <clears throat> I can't get this schmutz out of my throat. <laughs> Can I say schmutz? I think so. Is that yeah. appropriation? I, <laughs> I, I honestly so. don't know. I, jo- all jokes aside, I'm realizing yeah. that I want to be more sensitive to yeah. phrases yes. or memes or yeah. things that are not mine to appropriate. Yeah, that's good. It's I good come by appropriation honestly. I come from a long line of colonizers, Ben. Yes, this, as a white as a white man, it's it's what I do best. Yeah. Um. No, man. It's good to see you. Uh, you as well. My friend, I just got back into working out this week. Oh, really? Yeah. No more deadlifts, though. No more deadlifts. <laughs> Stay I, away I injured, from those deadlifts. Injured my back uh, pretty bad, so I've got a trauma response now. Every time I, every time I see one of those. <laughs> uh, no, I. Uh, but no, no, I did. I got back into working out. My back is feeling better. Um, Good. So yeah, I'm Good. hopeful. I'm, I'm sweaty right now. Is why I'm thinking about it. <laughs> it just worked out. I I just thought you were nervous to you know record this intro. Oh no! Yeah, <laughs> sweating, <laughs> pouring down my face. So, so my dad messaged me last night, mm-hmm. and uh, he he ruptured his hamstring. Oh my gosh! And I that I, I bad. I called him. I was like, Dad, what happened? Well, my dad moved to Tennessee, mm-hmm. and he 
has never played golf really in his life, and he's got all these friends now who play golf, and they invite him to play golf. The first time he plays golf, he hits a ball into the into the river, and he goes down to the riverside, and he's got a ball retriever. He's trying to get his ball out. He puts his foot on what he thought was a dry rock, and it wasn't dry, and it he slipped like a Looney Tunes, like his foot slipped oh out gosh. in front of him, and he did the splits. A 70-year-old man did the splits in the river, and he ruptured his... Oh hamstring. It was, it was, it was, I'm poor guy. Yeah. He probably won't play golf again. And, uh, yeah. yeah anyway, he's healing up. He Thanks. just met with the doctor today and, uh, Thanks. I'm going to give him a call here later and just check in on him. All right. So stay Sounds away good. from, stay away from, uh, slippery rocks. Too. Deadlifts, slippery rocks. Yeah. And probably just golf in general. So I don't yeah. know. I like Sounds... playing golf. It's, it's a sport of leisure though. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have tons of leisure to play it. Tons of leisure. And uh, usually a lot of money too. So, yes. Yeah. Speaking anyway. of leisure and money. Uh, yeah. No. No. Well, not quite. You didn't quite get there. <laughs> good try. It was a good try. Cat uh, Armis is has nothing to do with leisure and money in golfing. She but she has written a book, Abuelita uh-huh. Faith: What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. Uh, mm-hmm. This book is great. She yeah. is a. Uh, Wicked smart Bible mm-hmm. scholar, and she also tells kind of uh, her story as a Cuban American growing up in Miami, and reading scripture as a Cuban American female living mm-hmm. in Miami. And uh, I don't know, I I really appreciate uh, people who are um, have a different perspective, bring different questions, bring different experiences, notice different things from scripture than I do, just because mm-hmm. of how how God has placed them in the world and how yeah. they show up there. Yeah. And Kat is one of those people and our conversation was riveting. Yeah, it was. It was really it was really great. So get ready to be riveted. I'm not sure if you're get into that, but ready to be yeah, if you know <laughs> maybe the riveting is optional. Yeah. But yes. Uh also wanted to say if you uh, are not part of our Matt, I want to say this directly to you. Okay. This time. If you are not <laughs> part of our online community You'll know it because you won't get an email from me on Fridays. Mm. Are you a part of our online community, Matt? Ben, I I have a confession. Okay. And I've been waiting, actually, to bring this up to you, and I have never really had the right time to do it. So I'm glad you initiated this. A podcast, a public podcast intro is probably a very appropriate time. I'm feeling uh, feeling all kinds of relief, and I haven't even said this yet, but uh, I've been on the email list for a long time. That's great. Yep. That's great. For yeah, a long time, yeah. I've been getting these emails. And I've told you, you know what I've told you about these emails. You have the gift of emails. The gift There's of There's something about how you do that thing you do. <laughs> I like so much about who you choose to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really good, man. I mean, yeah. I unsubscribe from emails. I got a friend who subscribes me to emails. Like, mm-hmm. he subscribed me to my pillow. <laughs> mailing list this is the funniest way of trolling somebody Dude, in my mind he signed me up for uh who was it some oh uh, the desantis governor of florida the, his re-election campaign <laughs> my pillow that's, that's if, wonderful if you, if you have a friend ideas. and you want to troll them take uh-huh. their email and just sign them up for the most asinine inane lists yeah. you can think of yeah. and uh and if there's no double opt-in required, then they're signed up. There they well, go. Well, so. I unsubscribe from my pillow, but he keeps sending okay. me coupons. So if he, if you're but, looking to support that guy, that guy, just hit me up. You, yeah, I got coupons. <laughs> I got, I got some coupons. Discount coupons. Yes. All right, we should get into cat, huh? 
We should, yeah. If you do want to get on our email list, <laughs> oh, though. Oh, right, right, right. The, the one that Matt uh, the one that appreciates I just, so much. Well, I just got it off my chest that I have. Yeah, I'm yeah, a subscriber. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you feel better. I do. Uh, just go to gravityleadership.com slash join, and you can uh, give us your email address, and we will send you great emails. Mm-hmm. Yep. Once a week, usually. Once a week, yeah. We send you an email once a week, uh, and it's got curated links uh, for leaders and for people who are... Yeah, interested in kind of constructing a faith worth living here in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of an extension of our uh, podcast. Some of these conversations kind of find their way into the emails. So yes. anyway, join us there. All right. I think that's probably that's probably good enough. That's good enough. Intro. Yep. All right. Let's, let's get into uh, it. Let's hear from Kat. Bless today and thank you for this great book. Kat Armas, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, Kat, uh, she has her own podcast called mm. The Protagonistas, where she tells uh, hosts conversations and tells stories of everyday women of color, and she's written for Christianity Today, Sojourners, Relevant, Christians for Biblical Equality, Fuller Youth Institute, and Missio Alliance, among other places, and she speaks regularly on race and justice, Kat, anything else we need to know about you? What are some what are some of the things that don't make the back of the book? Yeah, well, I mean, the entire book is about my experience as a Cuban American person. So I would say that that is, um, you know, just the lens from which I speak and the lens from which I um, write and all of those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, besides that, I am, you know, a wife, a, a, about to be a mother for the first time. So that's exciting. And yeah. Um, and, you know, a forever student. I feel like I am a forever student of, you know, all things theology. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, which comes through uh, in this book. We're going to talk about your latest book that was published with Brazos called Abuelita Faith. Did I butcher that? Abuelita? No, you got it. I, got I love it? listening to non-Spanish speakers say abuelita. It's not an uh, easy word to say. Yeah, <laughs> Abuelita Faith. What women on the margins teach us about wisdom, persistence, and strength. This book is sort of a th- it's sort of uh, four parts in my mind, and I'd, I'd love to hear. If I've if I've picking up what you're doing here, it's basically your sort of your autobiography. It's a biography of your grandmother and your family. It's a history, uh, an anecdotal history of Latin America and uh, Cuba, and then it's also a, a maybe a, a feminist or not uh, maybe a Cuban American. Uh, look at w- women in scripture and telling their story through not only your story, but the stories of the women that you've been proximal to. Is is this, did I get yeah, it? Yeah, I think you <laughs> did a great job. Yeah. Um, I try and do a lot and sort of weave in history and uh, my history, my ancestors, right? Latin American history. And also um, just, you know, our ancestors in scripture, the women, um, you know, our foremothers who have come before us and who have paved the way. So trying to tell a lot of stories and just argue that, you know, some of the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians. And so, yeah. Yes. And I want to get into a couple of those stories later, but first let's start with, if it's okay, your story. You, I think you were born and raised in Miami. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. As a Cuban American and you were raised Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. Is that right? 
Yes. Yes. And then at some point, it seems like college or just after college, you you fell in with some Christians, Kat. <laughs> with some, yes, some right. uh, Protestant white evangelical Christians, yes. Yeah. What was it about? What was it about white evangelicalism coming from a Cuban kind of Roman Catholic background? What was it about white evangelicalism that appealed to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's funny, Miami um, as a city, you know, is not very, it's very Roman Catholic, obviously. And so um, a lot of the the religious or sort of the churches that you're going to run into, if they're not Roman Catholic, they're going to be, you know, small immigrant um, Pentecostal, maybe churches. Um, but at some point, you know, um, I think it was like the Calvary, uh, chapel movement sort of made its way, the non-denominational movement sort of entered the space and it was pretty brand new. So that was actually part of my story was that I started, um, I saw a, a radio station being promoted, a Christian radio station. I thought that was interesting. You know, I've always considered myself a Christian person. Um, obviously, you know, Roman Catholic, but I still was interested in the things of God and spirituality, of course. Um, so I saw this radio station being promoted on the back of a car or something. So I tuned in and it was one of the first, you know, Christian Protestant, uh, excuse me, uh, to be specific radio stations. And, um, yeah, they were sort of just, you know, playing your very, generalized white evangelical sort of sermons and uh, songs, you know, the hill songs and all that sort of stuff. And I wasn't familiar with any of that. Um, but I got, you know, I was interested. And I think the movement sort of got popular with younger, you know, younger Cubans, more Americanized, um, the younger generation. And yeah, and I, I was just sort of interested in it. Um, because it was very different than what I was used to, very different than what I was accustomed to in, in my, you know, Roman Catholic upbringing. And um, I thought its messages were interesting, you know, all about like making the most out of your life and, you know, and all of these things. And I thought that that was, um, yeah, they were interesting messages. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. It was really just listening to this radio station, listening to sermons on my way to work and, you know, from work and class and things like that. Um, and then there was a conference that they were promoting and I thought, Oh, I'll go, you know, and I talk a little bit about it in my book, but that was the first time that I was really, you know, people were, I I mean, I ended up going to this conference. It was like six months after I had started listening to the radio station and, you know, people were eyes closed, hands up, you know, Jesus on the jumbotron screen. And, and I had never seen anything like that, you know, the lasers and the lights. And it was just very intriguing for me (laughs) as a young, you know, um, in my early twenties, it was just very interesting for me and very intriguing. Um, and the messages were, you know, again, it was very much, you know, being a a young in your twenties, I was, you know, full of angst and what do I want to do with my life and listening to people like Christine Kane and Francis Chan, you know, talk about, um, giving it all up for Jesus and, you know, all these things. And, um, yeah, so I was, you know, I was all in, I think the community and, and the, the, um, intensity, right. Of the message and the people and the young people, I think really captivated me. And, um, but I didn't know, you know, the ins and outs of it. I didn't know the history. I didn't know anything other than, Oh wow, this is very interesting. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic and in college kind of fell in with some Christians. They didn't have a radio station, but they had guitars and yeah. an evening <laughs> in an evening group and uh right. i just i just never met christians uh, from my catholic experience i'd never met christians my age who took jesus seriously 
Right. And yeah. it was something uh, it was something passionate. There was a ardor and a zealot a zealousness and a fervor that well contagious, right? There was a contagiousness right. to it, an energy to it. Um and I I think it took me almost 15 years to begin to wake up to, oh, there's some things they didn't tell me about. Right. There's some things I didn't get at the door when I came in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have uh, a way into, I think, the genesis of this book. I don't know if this book happens, uh, maybe it does, but uh, it seems like a really important things happened to you when you went to seminary mm-hmm. as a Cuban-American woman where you felt like you began to be confronted explicitly with some of the things that weren't named when you first came into the faith. Could you maybe describe what that was and the impact that had on you? Yeah, definitely. And so as I was saying, yeah, I wasn't too familiar, you know, with the ins and outs of evangelicalism. Um, but I, I quickly was like, I think I want to, you know, pursue this. Uh, I want to pursue ministry. And I, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, you know, a forever student, a forever learner. And so I just, you know, began reading the Bible and commentaries and all these things. And I really wanted to learn more. And so I thought, oh, you know, New Orleans has a seminary. It's a cool place to live. I'll move there. I didn't know that it was Southern Baptist. I didn't know (laughs) what that meant. Um, And so I ended up, yeah, at this seminary where, you know, coming fresh out of Miami, where my culture is part of the dominant culture, you know, raised by women, um, you know, Mm. a single mother and a single grandmother, um, where, you know, it's just very different the way that you carry yourself and the way that you... um, just the, and, and in the book, I sort of argue that a lot of it's just survival, you know, like <laughs> my grandmother and my mother just had to like provide and do all the things because they had no other choice. And so that's what I was sort of raised to, you know, be, or, um, so I get to the setting where, you know, I was literally one of three people of color, you know, non-culturally white uh, person. And, um, also I was, you know, again, fresh out of Miami. And so I wasn't used to these very, um, set, you know, hierarchical or gender sort of norms. Um, I wasn't used to that. And so I think a lot of folks didn't know what to do with me, you know, Hmm. um, because I didn't come in with pre, you know, disposed ideas of how I was supposed to act or. Yeah. You didn't have the operating system, the right operating system to run that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was hard, you know, it was really, really hard. Um, because I, you know, of course I, I get there and I think, oh, this, these are the things that I need to do. And in order to be a right, you know, Christian or a right follower of God. Um, Hmm. and I began to believe that, oh my goodness, everything that I learned about God up until this point was, was wrong. You know, my grandmother's going to hell. Oh my goodness. You know, Mm. all, everybody in my community has gotten it all wrong my entire life. You know, it was a huge existential sort of crisis that I experienced. Um, Mm. and, and yeah, and then having to like try and retrain just everything about myself, um, thinking I needed to do that. And so, yeah, I think that that was a very jarring experience for me, um, you know, and, and really just wrestling with my identity, who I am. And a lot of it obviously was centered around who I am as a woman and who I am as a Cuban American woman, you know, because I think had I been raised in a culture where, you know, it, it, I wasn't, my culture was the dominant culture, maybe it would have felt differently. Um, but it was those two things, right? Ethnicity and gender. And they just sort of just clashed at the same time, along with me trying to figure out, wait a minute, you know, I, now that I'm, I'm super passionate about this sort of 
um, mm. spirituality? How do I, how does that all come together? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me that um, had it not been for sort of the strong sort of matriarchal culture you grew up in, that right. you wouldn't have been as impervious to the, the patriarchy and and right. sort of the white centric way of doing theology and ordering bodies and and the norms and all the expectations, it, it almost seems like I mean, and this comes out in your book, like the legacy your grandma lived into you was sort of your she was sort of your vaccine, mm. <laughs> like in seminary, <laughs> like she yeah, sort of was this good. inoculation against this white patriarchal norming, so that you had. I mean, the way you tell the story, you almost had this allergic response. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, no, sort of- I think that that's, I, I love the way that you frame that. Um, she was sort of like my vaccine. I think that that's right. I think that's, you're right about that. Um, because of, you know, the the strong, I mean, I was raised by women. You know, I didn't have any men in my life. And, and again, it was just hmm. because of death and a lot of different circumstances. Um, but yeah, and I think, again, what I was saying earlier about this idea of survival, I mean, you know, when you're just trying to survive, particularly in, you know, in my culture, there was, it's immigrant, you know, there's a lot of immigrant, it's an immigrant community. Um, yeah. I mean, you can't really prescribe to a lot of these things because it just doesn't work, you know, like there's no, there's really just no framework for it. Um, and, and not to say that my culture is not, um, you know, we don't wrestle with machismo and we don't wrestle with a lot of, um, you know, things like that. It's not to say that, you know, that's not uh, pervasive in my culture at all. It's just to say that in my specific, um, the way that I was raised specifically. And yeah, I mean, women just had to do all the things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think that it was when I, and I, I also say that, um, because I wasn't raised in white evangelicalism, I think it was easier for me to spot a lot of these things. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of people who it takes, you know, it just takes longer because that's just how you're, you know, what you're Mm -hmm. used to your entire life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're right. I, I did have a sort of allergic reaction. You know, I say that I, I quickly, you know, I stepped into, or I stumbled into white evangelicalism and then I quickly, you know, left, um, because it was very clear for me, um, because of Mm. the way that I was raised. So I think you're right about that. Yeah. Kat, could, I I wonder if you could give, uh, that's certainly true in, in, I think for me as a, as a white, I I grew up in this space and I sort of, it's made for me, you know, as a, Mm -hmm. as a white man. Um, and so it took me a long time to recognize sort of some of the toxicity or some of the problematic uh, elements of this. Um, Can you name for us one or two um, artifacts of this clash uh, that happened for you? Like one or one or two stories or, or just artifact, like how did you notice this? Um, And what, what was it that, that helped you see, Oh, I don't know if this is a space that really wants me here or as me, you know? Um, I don't know. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think a lot of those things, um, you know, a lot of these instances happened when I was, for example, in, in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a very formal space where, you know, you're you're expected to sort of like learn all these things about God. And and I just remember, you know, I I was I was taught to just speak up and be confident about, you know, and work hard and just sort of do all the things that anybody else would do. And um, I think that, you know, like, as I mentioned, kind of rubbed a lot of my professors the wrong way. Just a lot of folks didn't know what to do with that. Um, I was called out. Speaking up. Yeah, just yeah, kind of like mean, having yeah, an okay. opinion. And yeah, and I, yeah. I remember, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yeah, and just pushing back against things, you know. Yeah. Um, 
but I remember in one of my classes, um, it was a herm. I, I talk about. I mentioned this in the book, but it was a hermeneutics class, and mm-hmm. and my professor, you know, was talking about learning Greek and Hebrew and and how important it is if you're going to teach and all that stuff, you know. Which of course I agreed with, um, mm-hmm. and I'm here like, yeah, nodding along, you know, because I was taking obviously the, the the languages, and all of a sudden, you know, he he kind of said, <laughs> turned the corner and said, and ladies, you know, your husbands will be very impressed with you if you can exegete oh, scripture, along. you know, and I was. I was just so, it was so jarring to hear that. First of all, I wasn't married at that time. And then second of all, I'm just like, what? So what am I doing here? Like, why am I sitting here and like, you know, spending as much time studying and reading and like, for what? So my husband can be, my future husband that I may not even have one day can be, you know, impressed (laughs) with me. Right. And, and then I remember impress your husband. Right. right. (laughs) And it was just so bizarre. You know, I had never, I couldn't believe that. And then, and then he, literally finished that with right cat you know because i was just like he knew that i was very you know and yeah it was just a lot of experiences yeah. like that you know i had um yeah. another pastor who I, I write this in the story as well but i you know wanted to get together with a group of young women to read the bible and he just you know labeled me suspect from the second i got to his church you know just because i was like I made the initiative to like read the Bible with, I don't know, you know, um, Mm -hmm. started spreading rumors about me saying that I was unsubmissive and I had never, I didn't Mm. understand what that term meant. What do you mean unsubmissive? Like, what is that? Who, to who, you know, obviously to him. Um, and in his interpretation of that being unsubmissive to him was unsubmissive to God. right? Right. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, a lot of these little experiences that, you know, I remember one day, um, because I have light skin, right? Um, and so one day I was sitting with a group of, of women, you know, and and I said something like, yes, you know, I'm white. And I was talking about the fact that, you know, my skin, you know, is, it have light, light skin tone. And they all looked at me, you're not white, you know, and it wasn't in a way to you know, it wasn't a bad way or whatever, but it was, it was very clear, like, no, you're not, you know, you're not one of us. Like, it's very clear that you Mm -hmm. come from a different place. Um, just Mm -hmm. from the way that I carried myself and the way that I, um, yeah, just was. And so a lot of these little instances, you know, you start to, you know, especially that I came from a culture where I was the dominant culture, you know, I share in the book of how, um, I was in a, this was later on, I was in a, um, the Hispanic summer Institute and I was taking a class and a lot of the students had transferred from Latin America and, uh, or they were international students and they, mm-hmm. this idea of being a person of color was very new to them. They're like, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> like I'm just a yeah. person, you know? Um, and it was a very new thing to, to deal with being in the U S and I felt the same way coming from Miami, you know, because mm-hmm. I was part of the dominant culture. I never wrestled with my um, ethnic identity outside of Miami until I arrived here. And it was very obvious, right? It was like within days, you know? So yeah, yeah, those are some of the experiences um, right off the bat, you know? This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 10-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their life and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can participate more fully in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, 
visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. It's really interesting to me that like you, like just, I mean, just to be frank, like you look at a picture of you and you know, you, you could be sort of white, you know what I mean? Like in the sense of like very light skin and you know, that kind of thing. Right. But it's interesting to me that like the people that knew you there, it was very quickly just, you know, the way that you were with them, it registered right. to them that, oh, you're not part no, of no. this thing. No. You don't act like us. You know what I mean? Right. Like that, that's yeah, a you're fascinating not insight. Here. You're not yeah. from here, are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, you know, my experience in in this hermeneutics class. I'm learning about mm. how to exegete scripture and how to read the Bible. And every everything is from a framework of whiteness, right? Everything yeah. is from a yeah. framework of my professor, you know, was from rural Mississippi, which is mm-hmm. wildly different than you know, big city right. Miami, you know. Right. And everybody right. understood what he was saying when he was teaching. Everyone's like, oh yeah, yeah. I get that. I get these cultural, you know, whatever, um, because a lot of people were from that general area or if not, Mm -hmm. you know, were familiar with it. I had no idea, you know? And so I'm like, so what does this have to do with me? You know, not not that there's anything wrong with that, um, with obviously being from rural Mississippi, but yeah, when, when you can't connect with that, how am I supposed to, you know, relate and not not just relate, but as someone who wants to teach and, and, you know, how am I supposed to glean anything? Um, you know, so yeah. 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 And the problem there, right, is not not from being the problem isn't being white or being from rural Mississippi. But the problem the problem is when that is seen as the only authoritative or legitimate, the normal normal thing. Right. Yeah. It's the only it's the right thing. It's the only thing it's, you know, here you need to conform to these standards in order to be legitimized. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. And so then, Kat, you describe your work in the book as dissent. That mm-hmm. you you realized at this, and I think you quote um, kind of a, a, an axiom, axiomatic saying that my your very existence was resistance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to yeah. sort of the, the prevailing white hegemony that had set itself right. up in in Western Christianity. And so then, could you could you then could we like pivot a bit? Because I think the the theological work of this book is so necessary, so helpful for me, so helpful for others. Um, but you very consciously start the book with understanding that you are attempting. This is a project of of decolonize a decolonized reading of scripture. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with deconstruction, mm-hmm. um, but not as much decolonization. Would you Would you describe how you how you self self understand how you understand decolonization and how this project is a work of that? Yeah, um, definitely. And so, so there are different ways that you can um, understand or look at or investigate, you know, decolonization, decolonial theory, um, those sort of things. So for me, um, in my book, I kind of tackle it from the idea of knowledge or wisdom, you know, what is knowledge? What is wisdom? Who gets to say, you know, who is wise, right? Um, And sort of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to look at, you know, non-Western ways of being and knowing in the world um, that aren't, you know, don't come from the dominant culture. Now, you know, I do say in the book, like, I am a Western person. I mean, there's no way that I'm not, you know, right. um, I am a Western person. So anything that I say, of course, you know, I'm, it's, it's, it's that, that wrestling, that me trying to also, you know, see things from a non-Western way of being and knowing. And so 
in the book, what I'm looking at is, um, you know, the ways that my grandmother engaged in ways of being and knowing um, that weren't mm. shaped by the dominant culture. Um, also, you know, I'm looking at readings and understandings of scripture um, that aren't shaped by the dominant culture. And I'm also looking at my own ancestors, right? Um, I, I I look at the Taino people of the Caribbean who, you know, whom were the original peoples of Cuba and in and, and that area, the general Caribbean area. Um, and also, you know, just that in general. And so that's what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm sort of saying like, where does wisdom come from? You know, um, when we think of, of biblical wisdom or we think of people who are wise in dominant culture, we think of formal education or we think of right under interpretations of scripture. Or we think of, you know, a lot of these things. And, and so I'm sort of arguing like, well, you know, is that how, you know, we've seen wisdom throughout history, you know, and, and so that's what I'm sort of trying to investigate, um, you know, for example, you know, and I, and I, I sort of play with these things in the Bible, um, like the Hebrew midwives, right? I mean, they were yes. obviously wise, um, you know, because, you know, they were, they were people who saved, you know, they, they saved the entire people and whatever, you know, I mean, we, we know most of it, most of us know their story, but, um, but I think what's so interesting about the Hebrew midwives is that, um, you know, this idea of, of midwifery in the ancient world was, it was, a, it was a spiritual practice. I mean, they were spiritual leaders and healers and it was more than just, oh, they delivered babies, but they did rituals and they were looked at with respect. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, it, it's funny because in the dominant culture's eyes nowadays, we'd look at, you know, women like this and we would think they were maybe pagan or they were, you know, but this is the wisdom that they possessed um, and God, you know, called them righteous essentially, right? And so I'm yes. looking at different ways of knowing and being in the world, um, you know, and, and in my grandmother's sense, my grandmother's story, you know, I'm looking at the ways that she used embodied theology and embodied wisdom, you know, how she used her hands, um, how she held wisdom in her hands. Um, uh, and she, she may not have known the, the best way how to, you know, uh, exegete a Bible verse, you know, but the way that mm. she lived her life, um, I argue is a form of spiritual wisdom and it's overlooked in many of our ancestors and our grandmothers, um, because we look for, you know, that formal, uh, quote unquote <laughs> wisdom. Education, like sort of right. maybe what's pejoratively or caricatured as like sort of the enlightenment, cognitive, rational right. knowledge. And, yeah. and you, you describe how, um, not only in other cultures, like uh, Cuban cultures, Caribbean cultures, other Latin American cultures, but also Hebrew culture, where where wisdom is contained in knowledge of creation, right. or knowledge of bodies, um, right. or or even even in uh, just behavior, right? So, right. like James right. even says, um, "Who's wise and understanding among you? By by the good works of their life, mm -hmm. let them show yeah. that they're how smart they are." You know, right? Yeah. Um, and you describe so I want to I want to return to this body thing because I think your grandma you you, you named that she made clothes right mm -hmm. and that she had yeah. this um, tactile knowledge mm -hmm. about how clothes should feel and she could tell by touching them if they were made well or not. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder I wonder if you could talk a bit about the fruit of honoring and valuing that kind of wisdom in a life. Like what, yeah. what do we miss if we don't, if we're not able to touch things like your grandma? Mm, that's a great question. Um, well, I think, you know, something actually I'm reading, um, Yolanda Pierce's, um, 
in my grandmother's house, you know, cause it's a definitely a, a sister book to mine. Um, mm. Not officially, but, you know, um, and <laughs> she talks about something that I, I just find so beautiful. And I, I, I think about this and, you know, now as I'm reflecting on my own book, um, but it's this idea of being fully present. And I think and she talks about how, you know, so many of our of our ancestors who were trying to survive were fully present fully present in worship, fully present in, you know, all these things. And, and, um, as I was reading that, I thought, yes, you know, because I, like I mentioned, I talk about this idea of embodied theology and, and literally, you know, using your hands and sticking your hands in the dirt and, and, you know, I, and, and, and holding a mango. And what does that mean? What does that, you know, the, the weight of that in your hand, um, and all of these things. Right. And so, um, I think of this idea of, of embodied, theology or just, you know, embodied and being fully present in all we're doing. And I think so much of, of, you know, as my grandmother sewed, you know, um, and we had, you know, I had never really thought prior to working on this book of how that was a form of spirituality. But I think about how she was fully present, fully embodied and how she, you know, stuck that needle in that thread or that thread in that needle and how she took the time and the intentionality to know not just my body and the measurements of my body and how to put things together to clothe me and, and care for me and love me, but how she did that for her community, right? She was fully present for her community and she met the needs of her community. I mean, her, her like I mentioned, mm. her front door was constantly swinging open with women and men from the community. Um, and yeah, and I feel like that is such a perfect example of what it means to use your hands, um, and, and to provide, right. Um, because as we, as we read in the Bible, I mean, that is part of the Proverbs 31 woman, right. She provides for her family. So, you know, using your hands to provide and to create Mm. and to, care and to be fully present and to all of these things, you know? Um, and, you know, as I was reflecting on this story and as I was writing this book, I'm thinking about women like Tabitha in scripture, that's literally her story, you know? And we don't think of someone like Tabitha as someone Mm. who, you know, she's called a disciple. She is, um, her life was worthy of resurrection. I mean, literally they call on Peter to come and resurrect her because she had died. And she's one of like, three people in the new Testament that's resurrected. I think one of four besides Jesus, um, which I find so fascinating. Like why did they want to resurrect her? And all we know about Tabitha is that she sewed and she made clothes for the women in her community. She met a need she cared for. She was, you know, physically, uh, as you say, tactile, you know, she was there doing the things. And so, yeah, I feel like, you know, these are overlooked things um that we can learn from our our from our abuelas from our grandmothers of how they use their bodies um in those ways yeah 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 i'm i'm as you're talking about your abuelita i'm thinking about and i forget the reference but i, I think the first time the scriptures reference some the spirit of god bringing a gift upon someone mm. i believe i believe it's a tabernacle yeah. builder um, someone who's constructing uh, a place for God to dwell. Um, I can't remember the reference, but it strikes me that, like, it, the ancient Hebrews mm-hmm. understood that people I who made that. things were endowed with God's presence and power. Um, and, and we've lost that. Um, I, there's two places I want to go. I want to, you, I love the section about being a trickster and how this is um, a role that women can play. Mm-hmm. 
in a patriarchal society and culture and how um, basically <laughs> this, I don't know if this will get me in trouble. Basically churches yeah. are like queering the, queering the power dynamics and they, they, they really, they really turn things upside down and inside out. And I want to return to that. Just putting that there, Ben, because sometimes my brain does weird things on me. Um, but you have another section and I think is tied to what we're talking about with your grandmother's um, hands to quote another book. Um, and that is like, um, how, like how women use their bodies in scripture and how they right. use their bodies um in as protest uh and and so you talk about a little bit about how, how tamar uses her body uh as, as to as to basically show that she is more righteous than the righteous one and then you also tie that to like the story that um our culture tells women about their bodies would you could you just maybe explain that a bit and talk through how uh, the insights that you got yeah. from that text and how that intersects well, um, with your own survival is complicated, life. you know, um, and that's something <laughs> that's something that I uh, was yeah. wrestling so much with as I was uh, working on this book is just how yeah survival is complicated, um, particularly for women, um, particularly for women in a in a society that's not you know in a patriarchal society, and I think about how survival is complicated for women in immigrant societies and for black women and just for, for in societies that weren't, you know, weren't made for them. Um, and, and I feel like that's something that I, you know, you have to really wrestle with when you, when you look at the biblical text, um, because there are so many things that are there. Um, and, you know, we kind of, Oh, we tell these stories, but we, I don't think we really sit in the gravity of what they mean and how women, you know, as, as you mentioned, are using their bodies, um, in ways that, you know, nowadays we wouldn't, uh, or maybe not nowadays, but dominant culture wouldn't, um, celebrate or, you know, right. I mean, if you did this in youth group, you would get kicked out. Um, But these are women in the genealogy of Jesus. These are women (laughs) who are called righteous. These are women, you know, whose stories they, um, they put their bodies on the line and, and, change history, you know, Rizba, you know, um, you know, she didn't, obviously her story wasn't sexual, uh, in, in nature, but she literally put her body on the line and, and she, you know, physically protested, uh, injustice and it changed history. You know, God sent rain, which there was a famine for three years. Uh, Tamar, you know, as, as you mentioned, she, uh, pretended she was a prostitute. I mean, all these things, all these ways that women are using their bodies, um, and I think that that's just something that is really important to name that survival is complicated and that survival and that I don't think that God is offended um, or whatever, you know, by the different ways that um, women are, are trying to survive. In fact, um, I see survival. This is something that kept coming up for me over and over again, that survival is sacred and survival is holy. And I think that, you know, that's something that we can really take from a lot of these stories um, that, yeah, it's just sacred and holy. I mean, you, you think of the story of Ruth and Naomi and, you know, literally Naomi is like, go do this, go put yourself in front of this man because you need to be married because we need to live, mm-hmm. you know, and that story is like so romanticized and, oh, it's so, the, you know, but no, it's literally yeah, it's, yeah. just a story of survival of two women mm-hmm. just trying to make sure that, you know, they're not left destitute. Um, 
Yeah. And so I think that, you know, there's so many expectations, you know, to answer your question a little bit more, there's so many expectations put on women to be certain ways. And it's literally the opposite of what we find in the Bible. You know, um, I think for me as a Latina woman, you know, in, in the history mm-hmm. of colonization in, in Cuba and just in general, um, the way that a woman's body, that the second that the colonizers arrived, you know, was sexualized and was labeled, you know, a lustful or a temptation or was labeled whatever, um, you know, and then literally forced into submission in different ways, whether through slavery or, you know, in different ways. Um, but then you see, you know, so many places in the Bible where women through their sexuality are liberating people and liberating their communities and themselves. I mean, it really is such a contrast and I, yeah, it's just something that I I found so um, interesting in scripture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm just, I'm struck by that, um, that idea that, they're at the attempt to survive and the efforts that these women go to go through to survive right. is itself yeah. like commendable because it affirms life. Right. You know, it, it's, it's ultimately the most pro-life thing you can do <laughs> to uh, maybe say another phrase that might get us in trouble. But you know I mean? That, that it's, it's, it affirms right. life to say, I want to keep living. I'm going to find a way to keep living despite the fact that my society or these laws or, this right. is that like life is organized right now against me. Um, but these right. stories of women in particular finding a way to make it through, finding a way to survive. Right. And they're uh, called righteous a, and blessed. A, a great and, inspiration. you know, they're in the story, um, the genealogy of Jesus, yeah. which is just so beautiful. Yes, yeah. um, and God we, affirms this. I think when we think of yes. women trying to survive um, and the things that women have to go through in order to survive, we're not, um, inclined to call them righteous mm-hmm. right um but yeah but that's not what you see in the bible yeah yeah no yeah and i i want i want this to resonate uh a little bit longer i'm gonna i'm gonna like be pedantic and how much we're focusing on this because I, I think there's a lot of energy these days as people reckon with uh, maybe purity culture as people reckon with all the ways that the church hasn't helped them live into their sexuality hasn't helped them relate to their bodies in a healthy way hasn't led them to you know i did all the right, right. things i kissed dating goodbye now now i don't even believe in god anymore like it hasn't served them well so we've, we've been fed these promises by people who have all the answers, and people are are mad. And I think I want right. to say, as a, I mean, I'm a clergy person. Uh, you have every right to be mad. And and, and what I and what I want to say is, I think what you do, Cat, in telling these women's stories and letting them be heard, mm-hmm. um, rather than policed, is that you give us permission to um, celebrate how hegemonic, hurtful systems and structures are mm-hmm. protested rather than police the protest. And you, and you let these voices speak to the evil, and then God says mm-hmm. that the way they speak to the evil, which is the only way available right. to them, all Ruth can do right. is go present herself to Boaz. That's all she can do. And uh, it's not something that uh, necessarily... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a pastor right. would say, "This is how you get a this is how you get a husband today in 2021. This is what you do. You go find a but, but but it's all she could do, and she's celebrated. And I think that I think that we and I, when I'm saying we, I mean mm-hmm. like white dudes like Ben and I. Like we need to celebrate this too, and and maybe mm-hmm. put down maybe put down the batons 
and the tasers and just celebrate mm-hmm. it and count your book them so much. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. Me to do um, and, and I, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm hoping that we can, you know, as we reflect on the, mar- the most marginal in our society, that we can see their struggle for survival, you know, la lucha, as, as we say in Spanish, um, as, yeah, not just a holy and sacred mm-hmm. endeavor, but where we can meet God, really, really meet God, you know, where we can learn the most about God. Um, because, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if we're, if we're looking or, you know, looking at these stories and seeing how God is so um, in the details and God is, you know, again, blessing, you know, and, and whatever, however you want to understand that word, but if God is, is sort of blessing this, this struggle and the survival and calling them righteous and, you know, God is clearly in the midst and behind it. Man, what does that tell us about God? And where have we, what have we missed about, you know, who God is or, or how we understand, um, you yeah. know, the divine. And I think that, yeah, there's so much, um, yeah, to, to reframe and recalibrate and relearn about God um, in these stories. Yes. Yes. Maybe um, I, to, I want, we want to leave some of these stories for the reader as they uh, get your book and uh, study it. But um, I, I want to confess something, uh, maybe as we close. Um, you um, mm-hmm. looked at the, yeah. uh, the, the Canaanite woman. Is that Matthew 15, <laughs> Matthew 17? Yeah, Matthew 15. Um, and um, you did not refer to her as the Canaanite woman. I have always heard her referred to as the Canaanite woman. Uh, but you referred to her as the Canaanite mother. And that was the first time anyone had ever done that for me. Now, this could be uh, a judgment on my uh, reading, right? My reading list needs to be refreshed. But you, you did two things. One, you tied her story to the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, where he mentions four Canaanite women right? And two, you call her a Canaanite mother, which I think humanizes her in a way that she doesn't often get humanizes, humanized, and I think gives her dignity and honor in that conversation um, based upon, uh, I guess, I, I, always, I always thought it was mm-hmm. a bit of a, um, an easy read to say that uh, Jesus was being dismissive to her. Um, but Matthew, the gospel writer, has already told us how honorable and dignified Canaanite <laughs> women are. And Jesus knows this. Mm. <laughs> he knows his. Mm-hmm. He knows his abuelita was a Canaanite woman, and so uh, the fact that in that text, I think as I read it as you were doing it, I think there's a lot of legitimate readings of this text. But I, I read that Jesus was basically in front of his disciples, letting this Canaanite mother teach them mm-hmm. about what is prejudicial thought and what isn't, like what is godly and what isn't. And I, I just. The way you unpacked that and the way you told that. Oh, no, um, thank you. I'm so glad. Me a great deal. Yeah, so, I, I, I love her story because, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, first of all, she's a mother. And that's something that I, you know, I sort of tried to frame that. Um, and I, I talk yes. about, you know, my grandmother as a mother in that chapter and how, yeah, I mean, mothers, mothers are going to do desperate things for their daughters. I mean, she's a mother that's caring for her daughter. Um, mm. and yeah, and I, and, and that's first and second, um, about her story that just really stands out to me is how every time her story is told and retold, she's like the background of it. Like, it's not even really her story. The focus is, well, what did Jesus mean? And why did you, you know, the focus is Jesus and that's fine. Obviously we don't want the focus to be yes. Jesus, you know, and read the Bible, whatever. But, 
But I, I, I think that her story, um, she, in her story, she should be the protagonist, the protagonista. She deserves a little bit more attention. And I think because of the fact that at the end of her interaction with Jesus, he literally calls her a woman of great faith. And this is not something that he says a lot, um, at least according to Matthew, that he says a lot. In fact, right before, right after, I always forget exactly where, um, he literally calls out his disciples and says, you have little faith, you know? So it's like these men who have been spending all this time with yes. him are not understanding the things they need to understand. He tells them you have no faith. And here is this, what I call an, an abuelita theologian who just appears a desperate mother who is trying to survive. You know, she's trying to, not just for her own survival, but for the survival of her daughter. And she's a woman of great faith. I mean, she literally has more faith than the disciples. Yes. And we never even focus on her when we tell her story. We focus on, well, what did Jesus mean? You know? Um, and anyway, I, yeah, I just was so captivated by her as a theologian because mm. she theologizes. She talks back to Jesus. She, you know, she's saying, no, this is what mm. I need and you need to give it to me. You know, I don't, yeah, fine. You don't want to, whatever, you know, like she kind of engages with him and what, we call, you know, theology in conjunto, you know, theology in, in a reciprocal theological conversation. He engages with her in mutuality. He calls her, you know, a woman of great faith. Um, and she's like a triply marginalized woman. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, you know, I wanted to set her up in 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 that framework of, of what she really means, right? Like the Canaanite woman and how... It's such a complex, you know, her, her mm. background is so complicated, but it's, there's so much there. There's so much there more than just like, well, what did Jesus mean? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can make a case that the best theologians in the gospels oh, yeah. um, by Jesus's acclaim would be yeah. women, the Canaanite mother, the hemorrhaging woman, mm. right? The Samaritan woman. Right. They like get all it. of them receive yeah. much more sure. acclaim. They get it yeah. and they go man. off and do what they're yeah. supposed to do. And, and you know, they just, they get it. Um, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. No, this is uh, really helpful for me too. I'm, I'm pretty sure as of this recording that I need to preach this passage from Mark's gospel. There at you least. go. Um, <laughs> So anyway, I don't know if there's well, a- well, well. Good thing you have a friend that's got a yep. book that you could. That is fantastic. Uh, the book again Can't. is Abuelita Faith: <laughs> What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. Cat uh, takes her story, her grandmother's story, the story of Caribbean, Latin American, Cuban people, and the story of women in Scripture, and holds them together. I think in a harmony that brings um, greater so beauty than each story alone. So Kat, mm -hmm. thank you for this book. Thank you for your mind. Thank you for your theology and the work you're doing, the hard work you're doing. Um, we have benefited yeah. greatly from it. I have, and I know our listeners will too. If people, if people want to connect with you, well, first of all, thank um, you so podcast, much um, for engaging you? so well with my book. You know, thank both of you for, for reading and engaging. Um, and yeah. And talking to me about it. I love hearing other folks, you know, what they're, what they've received from it, you know, cause you write something and you put it out in the world and you're like, I don't know what people are going to mm -hmm. think or what they're going to get from it. Um, 
But anyway, yeah, if folks want to follow <laughs> yeah. me, I'm primarily on Twitter and Instagram under um, at cat underscore Armis. Um, also my website, catarmis.com. And I have a podcast, um, as you mentioned earlier, called The Protagonistas, The Protagonistas, um, where I just chat with um, women of color in church leadership and theology. Um, so yeah, feel free to, you know, say hello in any of those platforms and those places. Great. Great. Thank you. We'll, do it. we'll put links to all that in the show notes yeah, as well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at AaronSternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.